0: Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's Revenge? Daniel-san, you look Revenge that way. Start by digging to grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle. Sooner or later, get the squish, just like grip. Well, hello there, folks. Jack here with the uh, first Miyagi Mornings of the Week. I think this is 66. I don't remember anymore. Anyway, um, today's question, as usual, comes from Miwi, and it's a pretty interesting one. Person asked about determining the location to place a new garden, and they said that it was uh, on the eastern side of a house, and it got shade in the morning. And so I'm really not sure. There's a lot of it depends in there, because eastern shade, or east, you know, having east, being on the east side of a building, usually you have shade in the afternoon, which is is ideal. So maybe I'm reading that wrong. Maybe what they're saying is they're on. They have eastern shade and western sun, I'm not sure. But I'll try to answer it more for everybody than for just the one individual anyway. So when it comes to setting up a garden location, I believe in teaching things in a way that they'll be remembered and generally people remember acronyms pretty well. So I I describe it as the POW method, P-O-W-W. Proximity, orientation, wind and water. Those are your four primary things to think about. And you might find that the others, or the simple availability of land, or other circumstances outside of that method, overweigh anything, any one of them individually. So let's start off with exactly what happened here with the gardens behind me proximity. Ideally, your garden will be close enough to your house that either looking out the front door or the back door, just like, you know, John Fogarty, ooh, 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 looking out your back door, you will see your Garden from your back door or your front door. And if you need to go out and grab some parsley or something, and it's kind of a cold, rainy winter's day, and you're making stew and you want to grab some herbs that are still you know in season, you can just you know put your slippers on, run out of the fuzzy slipper uh, uh, test, is what, what Bill Mollison said. He said, if you, if you can't go out in your fuzzy slippers and come out with them, come back with them not all soaking wet, you won't go get it. So, yeah, that would be great. But you also have to temper that against reality, but we want it somewhat close to where we live, okay? Orientation is where we're gonna look at how it's oriented to solar exposure and solar radiance. So what's ideal in one climate is not ideal in the other in pennsylvania when i ran my grandfather's garden for him as a kid we had that garden set down toward the bottom of the yard you pull the car in, there's a little driveway you get a front yard and then a further front yard and when we were in the further front yard i guess it was bottom land there was a big hill off to one side that didn't really ever shade the garden and that meant it was kind of a catchment area for water which we'll get to in a second it was great and it had sunshine from about the time the sun rose until in the summer you know it would get 13 14 hours of sun and that was fantastic And everything was happening. Everything grew like crazy because of how far north latitude we were. Now, move down here to Texas. You do that to a garden down here, and your garden will hate you, and it will die in the middle of summer. It will literally just burn up and die. So you have to determine how much sun you really want based on your climate type and how much you can get. General rule, you want at least six to eight hours of full sun, during the peak of your solar timeline, right? So you're not gonna get eight hours of full sun at a time when you only get about seven hours of sun period. So don't get to the extreme with that. But we wanna orient the garden till we maximize solar exposure to our biome. Now down here in the south, the best place for a garden is right where this one is. I know you can't see it from here cause I had to tuck in this little bit of shade to be able to do this video. But right over there, there's a building and there's two huge oak trees. And not my sun starts out actually kind of almost behind the camera in the peak of summer, moves around behind me and then sets way over in the west. Our sun actually, because of where we're at, doesn't just go over, it goes from, you know, kind of actually almost in your north uh, east and sets in your northwest. Maybe, you know. ...clock in the evening. Half of this garden behind me is shaded, and by 7 o'clock, the whole thing is. Now, if you're from a northern climate, you might think, well, that's no big deal. Down here, whatever the temperature is in the middle of summer at 6 o'clock in the evening, it's going to be hotter at 9 o'clock at night. It keeps going up. And the western sun is absolutely, fundamentally brutal on your crops in Our summer darth, that kind of time where we actually get knocked back for like a month, month and a half, about July 1st through mid-August, sometimes all the way to around the 1st of September, things just don't really do really, really well. And so we're kind of growing as much as we can by then. We're keeping everything alive during that period, getting a little bit of production, and we go into a second big explosion of production. Pennsylvania went all the way through. So you, you deal with the orientation based on where you're at. Okay, and then we have wind. Right now, wind is hitting me, right here in the side of my head. The wind is coming from the west. The time of the seasons around here where we get the most brutal wind at the worst time for our plants is right when we're setting them out, right about now, it's February, March, the beginning of April, and it primarily comes from the west. So again, by setting on the eastern side of of this building, This whole building, my aviary, my greenhouse, the trees, the food forest, everything is blocking wind in this direction. This is great for two reasons. Number one, wind causes evaporation. It reduces your water, all right, which we get to next. But the other thing is you put a little plant out there, that poor little plant just come out of a nursery and you stick it out there. And then all of a sudden, (laughs) it just tears the shit out of it. It rips leaves off and it beats the crap out of it. When I, when I was in Arlington, uh, my place is about you know an hour south of here, there was no real good way to block wind. And I actually would, during this time of year, would set up plywood temporary barriers to block wind. That works. And it was the only way to get my plants through this beat-up time of the year when those new baby plants were going out there. Here I have natural structures to do that, but we need to look at wind for its effect on the plants and for its effect on evaporation. So obviously mulching and things like that, all those things can help keep more water in the soil, but wind wicks away water. And it's something people don't generally look at is blocking wind for the purpose of, again, protecting the plants themselves until they look out and see their little plants they just spent $3 a piece at Home Depot for looking like a a miniature tree in a hurricane down off South, South Florida. Uh and then again the evaporation is a big one everybody overlooks. And then water. We need to look at water from a variety of standpoints. We want to know number one, what is the effective overland flow of water in an area? If we have a steep hill, we don't want to put our beds up and down the hill. We want to put them across the hill on contour. In general, contour is a great idea. We have raised beds like I do, these big tall ones keep the ducks out of them. It really doesn't matter from that standpoint. But we want to make sure that we're considering all natural water and our ability to irrigate. So we can pretty much take our ability to irrigate anywhere we want to and have the money and the budget to do so. As long as we can plumb into some existing water pressure, we can bring it out there. But we also need to look at what are we going to irrigate with. If you're fortunate like me and you're on a well, it's great water to irrigate with. If you're fortunate like me you have a well plus rain catch, rainwater is your best irrigation water. Even if you are irrigating in a classic sense, rain catch is better than well and well is better than city. That said, if you have to water your garden with city water, go ahead and do it, but think about water in the equation. And so when you put those together, you come up with a total picture of how you pick where your garden's going to go. And then you have to sanity check against what's available and where your ideal spots are and where your doable spots are. So for instance here, this garden that I'm standing in front of right now fails the proximity test of the fuzzy slippers. It's not a huge walk. But there's a building, there's a lot of stuff in the way I just described that blocks the wind, and my house is kind of way back over there. It's, it's a one-minute walk, and you're here. It's no big deal, right? So we got that going on, but why? So if I come directly out of my back porch and I go where your typical classic zone one in permaculture would be, I have a leech field, Okay. And that leach field is at an age where not only... I'm not worried about contaminating the food. I, that, that's something people overthink. But it's probably going to need to be dug up in the next few years. Okay? It's also the place that my grandson plays. It's his play area. It's where we have our barter blanket. There's other things that go on in that space. And since I will never have trees or anything in that space, it's become kind of like the athletic space, the gathering space, etc. So I don't want a gardener. Um, my other option... And if I was doing a market garden or something like that, it was not an educational facility. It's where I would have a garden. It's right out my front door. There's a great spot out there. Good at least quarter acre, relatively flat, great exposure. Some things could be done to add some shade, you know, plant some trees along the western corridor to add that western shade. It's a great spot. Why don't I do it? Well, because I'm an educational facility and I have events where there's 60, 70 people here and I have to have a place people can park. So I don't want to garden there. Those are actually in some ways better places. But we've done some things over here that make this place ideal. One is the wind blocking and the solar aspect. And those things outweighed everything. The other is that great big, almost 5,000 gallons of water sitting there right in the center of the gardens. And what that's doing is it's creating its own microclimate. It's also attracting the hell out of pollinators. You, know, you can do whatever you want with you know flowers and pollen and, and, and nectar and all that. And you should. But boy, I'll tell you what, around here in the middle of summer, when you've got something like that with all those water plants floating on top it, where a bee or a wasp can come in and land and safely drink water, that place is a buzz in a real way. So water is not just water for the plants, but what can a water feature do for the garden? So then we get a moderating microclimate, we get predator attraction. You have to balance all of this out, and you have to think about the long-term plan. So maybe this is a really great spot you have right now for a garden. It's got everything going for it, and it's doable. But if your long-term plan includes other design elements, that may alter the final location of the garden. The good news is if you're doing something like raised beds, and you decide you want to move your garden, and you have something as simple as a lawn tractor, a shovel, and a little trailer cart like I do, You can fairly easily, even all the work you've put into building soil and all, unbolt some boards, pick them up, haul them over, bolt them back together, bring the dirt over and dump it in and start over if you really want to. So it's not, it's never gonna be, in a conventional garden scenario, truly a type one error. It's not like putting a pond or a dam in where. Man, I've done that now and I'm stuck with it. And I think that's the final thing I wanna leave you with today. If you've put a garden in, in a spot and it's really not working out, and over the time you've learned your property through observation, you've learned through videos like this that, hey, there's really a better place. Don't think you have to live with something as simple as a garden. You can move it somewhere else. And I would say, you might wanna start thinking a little bit in the mindset of Joel Salatin with fences when it comes to gardens with permanent structures. And what I mean by that is when you invest in something like what's behind me here, this is a fairly permanent structure. Or if you're going to go in and do like keyhole gardens with dry stack stone or mortared stone, really, or something like that, where it's really a permanent structure. You might want to kind of temporarily use that place until in, after a year or so, then we might build it up. So I had a little garden here, and I trialed this area, and it worked out. And it was real easy decision to just tear it up and build what you see now. So I gave it, like, does this area work the way that I think that it does? I put up a quick little temporary fence through standard box garden on the ground, just a few raised beds, threw some irrigation on it, and said, yes, this spot does what I think it does. And then I was willing to invest in this. That comes from Joel South in this way. What he says about fencing, put up a temporary fence. Stick some rebar in the ground, put some electric wire on it, put a charger on it, whatever. Put up a temporary fence. If two years after you put that temporary fence up, it's still in the same place and you haven't felt the need to move it, go ahead and put your your, your full-time permanent fence in. Just think that way. Remember, POW, proximity, orientation, wind, water. Take care, guys. So hello there, guys and gals out in the interwebs land. I want to talk to you today a little bit about cryptocurrency from a different angle than I think that I've talked about it before. Um, the main theme, I guess, we've talked about before, but the angle I want to come at it from is a little bit different. And maybe it'll help some of y'all that seem to be stuck in the mud on, on this issue. So there's a whole plethora of why Bitcoin's a scam, why it's going to crash, why it's going to go away, why it's going to be regulated to oblivion, et cetera, out there. One of the most common ones, though, is, well, you know what? It it ain't going to go away, but it's really just a trap. See, the New World Order is actually Satoshi Nakamoto, and they're going to use it to enslave humanity with a one-world currency. Yeah, We'll get to explaining why that's stupid, even if it's true. At least it's a stupid reason to not be involved with cryptocurrency. If If you're right about that, well, we'll get to it. But I want you to think back to the dawning of the Internet. You know, when people were on morning news TV channels trying to figure out what the at sign meant and what an email was and what www was and what it meant and things like that. If you look up, it's pretty funny. You can find videos from around 94 to 96 with these people who are supposed to be reading you the news and should be telling you about this cutting-edge new technology that was going to very soon completely transform life as we know it on the planet with no... Fucking idea what it even was. I mean, really, they had no idea. It's funny, like Good Morning America, Today Show, shit like that. You listen to these people dribble on about what is this? Oh, what is that symbol? Like, and you realize, like, even back then, you shouldn't have trusted them. Well, the internet didn't really go through the first phase of this process that, that Bitcoin and all cryptocurrencies went through, which is it doesn't work. It's never going to work. Um By the time Internet was actually available, you couldn't say it didn't work because everybody was throwing, you've got mail, AOL disks in their computer and signing up for, you know, uh, Internet and, and, and getting on the Internet and, you know, using that archaic technology. Right? So they knew it worked. But very, very quickly popped up a group of people that said, what? Well, man, that Internet... Let me wrap my foil hat a little tighter. That Internet's a trap, man. If you get involved with that, they're going to track you. They're going to control humanity with the Internet. Now, do you think maybe the government thought that that might be what they would be able to do with the Internet? Do you think that maybe there are some ways that the Internet is used by government and media to control people? Sure. Do you think they have complete control of the Internet? Are you not on the Internet listening to this right now? Or if you're listening to the podcast version, you're listening to it because it came across the Internet? Has not the Internet empowered an asshole like me to have freedom of speech in a way that was never possible prior to the Internet? And podcasting, and videos, and things like that online. Even if the government thought, yeah, this will be great, man. We'll charge people for email, and they'll pay for it. (laughs) That didn't work out. That was actually a plan, by the way. The government thought that they would create like a government-sanctioned email and that you would pay to use it when corporations were giving it away for the right to put a little tagline or strap line of advertising in it. Or for a few bucks, you could run your own server. Yeah, they thought they thought you would pay for it because they're that stupid. And they do use the Internet to track people's movements and things like that. But I'm going to ask you a simple question. If you care enough, are there not ways where that you can make it very simply where they cannot track shit, jack shit about you? Are there not VPNs? Do we not have a Tor network? The oh, Tor network's been compromised by the CIA. Yeah, if you're stupid about how you use it, and if you're the subject of an ongoing CIA investigation and specifically targeted as an individual, sure. Or plotting to blow up planet Earth with, with uh, the emodium P-32 space modulator, maybe. But the average person using... Uh, the Tor browser is pretty damn invisible, and there's VPNs, and now we have what are called distributed VPNs. That's back to blockchain and cryptocurrency, and you're not interested in that, right, if you're one of these people. You mean there's a distributed VPN? You don't even know what that means. What it means is a VPN that can't be hacked. It means a VPN that your VPN provider can't sell you out like they've done. So there's ways, and it's not you don't have to be that technical to use them, where you can do whatever you want online and not be tracked. You can even go over to Zucker Cox, Facebook, I wanted to call it something else, and you can go over there and use that, and you can do things where they can't track you off of Facebook by installing simple browser extensions. So all of this thing, well, the government's going to do this, the government's going to do it. The government's going to do what the government's going to do. Whether you get involved or not, they're going to do it. So here's how I look at this. If cryptocurrency, man, it really is a plot, And the global banksters, first of all, they would have moved a little faster in getting on board instead of shitting on it for the last 11 years before getting on board with it, wouldn't they? But let's say it is, and they they played the game really, really well. And now Goldman Sachs is coming out with a stable coin built on Algorand. The U.S. dollar tether is now being built on Algorand. Uh, We have all these different projects and all these different things going on where, yes, the mainstream scum are getting involved because they see money and they like it. And they're going to make, you know, let's say that you're right, you, you've got that full hat wrap really good, and they're going to make, they are going to make Bitcoin the global world currency. And everything's going to bin off, and then they're going to track everything you do, man. Great, then you know what will happen? Bitcoin will be worth a million dollars of Bitcoin. That's what will happen. That's that's what that leads, at minimum. And then I'm going to be saying, hi, this is Jack Spirico coming to you from the island of Fuck Offistan, if that happens. So that's okay with me. And you know what? When I convert that money to fiat to buy the island to fuck off of stand, I'll pay the income tax on it. I don't give a shit. you be like, well, if they can tax it, then it's over. Really? Because last time I checked, when you make money on a stock or a mutual fund or a commodity trade, they tax that. That didn't seem to go anywhere, did it? But, man, they'll be able to track you. And if you're right... Then it won't matter because you'll be in fiat, US dollars, in their cryptocurrency. And if you never touch Bitcoin or any of this other stuff over here, they're still going to track everything you do. In fact, you're going to have absolutely no way that you're going to be able to counter it. You won't be able, you'll be the person that's online bitching about being tracked that doesn't understand you can just install a VPN and make that go away. That will be you. That's what, th- that's where that leads. But if you start using cryptocurrency, Not only can you take some of these larger digital assets like Bitcoin or Ethereum and stockpile some reserves in there for the appreciation value, you might actually start learning that there's ways to do things that are anonymous and untraceable. Well, they're going to sell you out, man. Okay, so you tell me how a completely decentralized exchange they couldn't tell you what account you have if you asked them and, 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 and didn't, unless you gave them your username, they would, I mean, I'm talking Polarity. I had a guy from Polarity on, I said, so you, can you tell me which account is mine? He said, no idea what account is yours. You know, if you use your, your public email for your account, sure. If we know to look for it in the first place, Sure. But you could go on these DEX exchanges and you can exchange cryptocurrency with other parties and counterparties without anybody knowing who anybody is. And it's completely secure and it works. Oh, and by the way, unlike your uh, more conventional exchanges, you do hold your keys. You basically have what you would think of as a cloud-based wallet. And that means that you have complete control over your currency at all times. You never have to give away any true identifying information. You use 2FA for security, so you don't even have a phone number attached to your account. And any Dimwit can set up a Proton Mail account, and you probably should if you're listening to this video right now and you care about privacy. It's not a perfect solution if the other party's not using it, but it's a start. Unless you're hosting your own and you have your own encryption. Just saying. Right? Like, we have the ability to counteract every single alarm bell that these people are trying to set off. But I'm back to what's really going on here. These are people that cannot accept the change that's happening in the world. And so they'll find any excuse they can to not touch it. And you're okay doing that if you want to. I'm just going to tell you what's going to happen. First of all, you're going to be even angrier a few years from now when you realize how well you could have done getting involved with this just a little bit. And I always say, you know, I don't know the immediate future, so make damn sure you don't put any money into this you can't afford to lose. This is your Vegas money, your, your, your fast food restaurant money. This is money that if it goes away, you won't care. I don't expect it to, but I don't know. Maybe you're stupid and you'll invest in some shit coin. I don't know. But if you stick to solid projects and you use common sense and you learn a little bit and go a little bit out of time, you're going to be mad about that. But the other thing that's going to happen is you're going to look in your bank account And your bank account is no longer going to be able to get cash out of it. And you're going to be using a cryptocurrency whether you want to or not. And they damn sure will track everything that you do. And you will have no alternatives. And they can try to shut this down, but it's a lot like the Internet. I guarantee you, the utility that the government gets from the Internet is high. But once it was set loose, they were like, oh, fuck, what have we done? That's why they're doing all this censorship and shit like that. And you know what? It's not going to work either. You have these alternative, and I don't even call them alternative. I I would call them new social media platforms that are coming out, that are blockchain-based, that are going to tie into the power of IPFS. And You don't even know what that means, half of you. What it means is, go ahead and shut it down. Good luck with that. That's what it means. We're moving into a world where you're going to have basically a bifurcation of society. You're going to have people that are technologically educated and dum-dums. And I don't mean dum-dum in an insulting way. I know it sounds like it, but they're going to be technological dum-dums. Oh, they'll be able to work the apps on their phone. They'll be able to send an email. They'll be able to do their little job monitoring their fellow citizens in a city that's a high-tech, minimum wage job, right? Right? World Economic Forum has that plan for you so that you can get trained on how to sit behind a monitor and monitor your fellow citizens in a smart city. You can go do that, and you'll be monitored too. Because that's what's coming. The people that are saying, like, the, the New World Order, just, I hate that term. I think it's an asinine term. What, what you have is a techn, technocratic oligarchy running the world. And you've had that for as long as there's been... Communications across the world, where you could get a me- the day you can get a message from Pennsylvania to Germany in seconds, not weeks. We ended up with a global technocratic oligarchy. They were just using the technology of the time. Today, the technology is a lot more advanced, and they do want total control because that's what people with mon- with that much money. Here's what you got to understand. You got to start thinking about it this way: if you are a freaking billionaire, or you are a politician that's seventy years old that's been in office for forty years. And you're not ready to be like, you know what, I've got enough. I'm going to just like go off and feed seagulls ice cream or something like that down in Florida and enjoy the rest of my life. If you're still pursuing power and money after a certain level, there's only one, actually there's two words for you. You can be one or the other or both. A fucking psychopath, a fucking sociopath, or you're a sociopathic psychopath. That's the only people, like, when you have a guy, like, people say they feel bad for Biden because he's so, so, like, lost as marbles and his family's using him for power. I don't feel bad for him because he's a freaking psychopath. Anybody that seeks power that long is a psychopath. And I don't care what initial comes after their name. Most people in this country, if you said, you know what, tomorrow morning you can be president, they'd be like, fuck that, I don't want nothing to do with that. Most people in the world, if you said, here's a million dollars, no strings attached, it's yours, they'd be like... Holy shit thank you that's earth changing you said here's 10 million they're like holy crap but there's a point where they'd say i don't want any more i don't even want the responsibility of giving away any more please give the rest of this to somebody else because they're not a freaking sociopath people that have 4 billion 5 billion 6 billion dollars and they still want more are psychopaths and that is that's the truth it's not about a new world order It's about a bunch of psychopaths who have risen to the top of the social and economic structure because being a psychopath works. We always think of the psychopath as some knife-wielding moron in a prison, drooling, foaming like he's got rabies. Most psychopaths are very intelligent, and they learn very quickly that they have to suppress their outward appearance, and then they pursue careers generally in finance or politics. And then they become very successful at it because they'll do anything and everything to get what they want. And they always think in the beginning, well, I'll just get this much and I'll be good enough. But it's never enough. It's like playing a video game for these people. Well, I got level 100, but man, I got to stay up a little later and get 101. It becomes that. they're, They're fucking with people's lives. They're destroying entire global economies. But they don't care. They just want more. They don't need more. They have no use for more. They just want it. And those are the people that are seeking control. And they also believe that they're altruistic. They really believe that you're too fucking stupid to be responsible for your own life. They really believe that. They really think you are an idiot that cannot be trusted with true freedom. And therefore, for your own protection, we have to protect you by not letting bad things happen to you, by letting you do the things that you want to do, because you can't possibly be trusted. And those of you who holds your breath on this, that's where you're going to end up. Under co- The control you fear will be the control you have in your life because you will not have a plan B. And there may be a point where if you're 100% in the fiat world and you want to get over in this space, that window starts closing and maybe if it doesn't close all the way, it gets very narrow and very difficult to get through. Because those of us who are already in this space... We're going to have our own markets, our own commerce, our own exchanges, own everything. And five years from now, frankly, I don't know how many people that are on the outside we're going to trust as a group. And let me tell you how some of this stuff's going to work. There will be consensus mechanisms as to whether or not you're allowed through the door. If we have consensus mechanisms that prevent us from counterfeiting a unit of currency, we can certainly have consensus methods that keep you from getting in. Because, man, what's up? Why is it 2028 and you just want to be part of this? Are you one of them? Are you one of those people with the minimum wage slave job monitoring your fellow citizens? You know, we are, we're over here in fuck office, Dan. We don't need you. And you guys think I'm kidding. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not telling you you have to do this. What I'm telling you is if you're like a horse with blinders on, if you're like the three monkeys, hear no, see no, speak no, and every time somebody tells you about this, you put your fingers in your ears and go blah, 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 you're a fool. You're ignoring the single largest transfer of economic power that has ever occurred on the history of planet Earth. But go ahead. Go ahead. The later to the game you are, the better it is for us. I've been sitting at the table for years. I'm done with this again for a while. We'll, uh, we'll talk about something totally different tomorrow. How about how to make a really great cup of coffee without relying on what we think of as a coffee maker that you have to plug into the wall. Take care, guys. I'll be back tomorrow. Hey, guys and gals. Jack here with Miyagi Morning's episode I Don't Have Any Idea. It'll say in the title what number it is at 60-something. See, it's uh, Wednesday, so it should be 68, I think. Anyway, um, I have a great question in from Miwi, and it stemmed from a video that I did about the Texas blackout and some things that we learned and uh, some things that we did and, and really had nothing to do with anything we learned. We already knew this, but it was all about having a great, delicious, I don't know if you can see that there, steaming hot cup of coffee during the blackout. And I made a comment in that video about how a long, long time ago I had a guy I worked for and he had like a a small generator. I think it was like an EU 2000 Honda. And, uh, you know, powers out, we'll make some coffee. And it was barely able to run a standard drip coffee maker. Yeah. These uh, coffee makers will draw somewhere between 1100 and 1500 watts So a a generator of that class can run one, but what it can't do is run it in anything else. And a lot of people are sitting out there, you've got your little 800 or 1,000 watt, uh, like dirty hand tools or sportsman's generator, and they're a great little backup. I'm always an advocate of getting a bigger generator later, but I'm also an advocate of let's not use generators for things that they're not really good for. And generators are really not the best way to make water and ground coffee into coffee. Now, before we even start on basically the setup, I want to set the frame with two things. Number one, I'm a whole bean grind it right before I make it kind of guy. I might grind enough uh, coffee for a couple days at a time occasionally, but generally I'm grinding coffee on a daily basis with a little bitty coffee grinder that I'll put a link to in the video notes. Uh, It's made by Mr. Coffee. It's cheap and it works. Um, It uses electricity. Yeah, it uses electricity. So, if you're going to be doing that, you're going to need some form of backup power. The good news is that it doesn't need much power at all to run it. And I don't know why, like, somebody like the or something with this huge installed tool base should make a coffee grinder that uses, like, 20-volt DeWalt battery. It would just be badass, but it would be cool. It would be neat on a job site. And you're going to see how on a job site you have everything you need to make coffee if you're prepared. So there. the other side of what I try to teach is that what you use in a disaster should be when when possible and when optimum, as close to what you do on a daily basis outside of a disaster. That way you're familiar with it, you're used to it, everything works. So this little prop here is um, a great French press. And this is my number one recommendation for making coffee, uh, to make great coffee in your home on a daily basis. And the beauty of it is as long as you can boil water and have ground coffee, you can make as much coffee as you want. This is the smaller model. Again, I'll put a link to where you can get these in the video notes as well. Um, I have these on my website, full review on them. This is the smaller model. I have a larger model. And day-to-day, I make my coffee with this, or my wife makes our coffee with this, depending on whose turn it is to make the coffee. Really, really simple thing. You fill it up with as much coffee, and you figure out what works for you. You then pour hot water in. I'm not a boiling kind of guy unless I'm just getting by because the power's out or whatever, and hey, it boiled, so the hell it goes in there. I usually heat my water to make coffee with using an electric kettle to exactly 200 degrees. That's day-to-day in a disaster. I throw it on the stove and I boil it. We'll get to that in a second. But once you have that coffee in here, you let it set for about five minutes, you insert the plunger, and then you slowly, not rapidly, push the plunger down. Yeah, that's it. Then we have delicious coffee. To me, this makes coffee that is so superior to a drip coffee maker, I don't own one anymore. I got rid of them. And if you are gonna get a drip coffee maker despite all this, then I recommend that you get one that has a carafe that does not have a hot plate. So it's not sitting there boiling and cooking down coffee. So basically, uh, Mr. Coffee makes one. I'll see if I can find it and put that in the notes too for you. You slide it in, it drips, and then it has a little thing that automatically closes and it keeps the coffee hot for a couple hours because it's so well insulated, but there's no additional heat. So if you insist, then that's what I would do. The other uh, product that you can get, and I don't have any specific one to recommend because they're pretty much all about the same, is what's called a percolator. Now, coffee snobs hate these, and they hate these because it boils coffee. The way they work is pretty simple. Uh, In a lot of ways, they work like the large break room style electric coffee makers. If you look at that, it looks just like what goes in one of those guys, right? You've got a basket up here. You fill it with coffee. You put your little lid on it. You put it into your coffee maker and you want to hold it like this when you do it. You end up with coffee going all into your water and that's not good. And then you take this and you put this on any sort of a heat source with it closed. You want it closed, and it basically is gonna percolate. And you kinda of know when it's done, but there's no real like, hey, I'm done. You kinda of figure that out as you go. And if you use it too early, you'll have really weak coffee and, and you'll figure out about a time frame uh, that works for you with, with the percolation. And what it's doing is it's very simple. It's heating water. That water is coming up through this tube, through its own force, it's being discharged into the basket and draining back through the holes. It's real simple. So you've got the water coming out of a little thing here. It's perk, poop, poop. Some of them are really cool. My grandfather had a very old one um, that he made his coffee with all the time on a coal stove in the winter time. So the coal stove ran nonstop through winter to keep the house warm. It was a half side was gas and half side was coal. And he just set this on his coal stove and it worked great. I have one of these for camping. I think this is way superior than dragging a French press uh, camping. And when we're uh, camping and we have a fire, we pull some coals out kind of off the side of the fire, set it directly on the coals, makes delicious coffee as far as I'm concerned. It is not, to me anyway, the same quality that you get from a French press. I do agree that boiling coffee is not optimum. But it's, you know what, if it's a blackout, you're much better off with that than you are with no coffee at all, or having your generator go whoa, or having to unplug things so you can run a coffee maker on a larger generator, in my opinion, do the easy thing. All you need to be able to do is boil water, and there's lots of ways to do that. One more before we go on to boiling the water. There are these uh, coffee makers, they're called espresso Stovetop Espresso Makers. Yeah, um, they make something espresso-like. And if you like really strong espresso-style coffee, they're great. They kind of work like a percolator, except the coffee goes in the bottom. And they force the water up through the bottom under pressure, which is kind of how you make espresso. And they basically move the water from the bottom to the top. I guess that's, to my recollection, I've never used one. I have a friend named Patrick, Patrick uh, Rohrman of MT Knives, he loves those things. He travels with one. If you like espresso, really strong-style coffee, you'll like it. I'll just say, you can get little bitty ones to make like a single shot you can get bigger ones to make a cup. I'm not a huge espresso guy. It's kind of a guilty pleasure once in a while at like a coffee shop somewhere where I'm gonna spend some time and you start off with an espresso and switch to regular coffee like and just kind of key things up. But if you like it, that would be a good way to go too. On grinding, my advice is if you know a weather event's coming in that's gonna put your power out, preemptively do as much as you can before it happens And coffee ground is fine in emergencies for at least a week. So I would grind, you know, enough. You know how much coffee you use every day. I'd grind enough to go about seven days and set it aside. And, you know, maybe toward the end of it, it's not quite as optimum as that fresh ground, but it's fine. And that's one less thing you have to do. So when you are expecting storms, a weather event, a hurricane, anything that might take out power for a day or more, if there's something easy to do while the power's on, Go ahead and do it. Now, boiling water. This is only a problem for people that have electric stoves. The problem for America as a whole, as coffee addicts, is most of us have electric stoves. I don't. Uh, I will never own an electric stove again. No matter where, if I ever move from this place, which I think you're going to have to blast me out of here with dynamite now. But if I ever move from this place, then what you're going to, uh, what you're, what what I'm going to do is if there is not gas service there, I will pay to have a propane pig installed because it does so much of a better job day to day. And it is bulletproof when the power goes out. It doesn't matter. You might have to manually light your your stove. So this is something I didn't even know that anybody would need to be told because preppers should have matches and lighters. But I did talk to one person at a gas stove, uh, but found out in the middle of the blackout at least couldn't find Any in the house matches their lighters. And what this person did, they didn't have candles, so they went outside. They lit up their grill with their, you know, battery-powered igniter, and then they used a stick to light a candle and brought the candle in the house. And then they would use like a paper straw to light the grill off the or the the stovetop So make sure you have that. But if you have a gas stove and as long as you know how to light it when the power's out, because your little plug-in zap 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 thing doesn't work, you're gold. If you don't, a lot of people think "I'll, I'll go boil water on the grill. Yeah, that takes a lot. If it's just a standard grill without a side burner, that takes a long time. You might want it and anything you're going to rely on. Try it before you need it. Um, a lot of grills do have side burners. Some grills have really great high BTU side burners. Some grills side burners are fine for like warming up some basting sauce or something, but they're really not good for boiling significant amounts of water. Um, if you get yourself one like a jet boil or something like that, you have it for backpacking, just know where it is, get it out in advance if you know some weather's coming in and use that. I have a two burner Camp Chef stove. I'll put a link in the video notes. I love it. I love it. If I had to go to a house that had an electric stove, I would cook out on my porch every day with it until I got my gas pig in. If I had to live without gas for whatever reason, I would own one of these and I would make eggs and bacon in the morning, on the weekend, out on the patio with my family. It is as good almost from a performance standpoint as my very expensive gas range in my kitchen. It is fantastic and it's 100 bucks on on average cost. Sometimes it's a little higher, sometimes a little lower. It is designed to take the little small bottles or you can get an adapter where it takes a great big grill tank. It's limitation. If you're using a little green Coleman you know, size uh, one pound cans, it works fine if you use one of the two burners. If you run both, it will take about five minutes to completely freeze up that little one pound unit. It's pulling too much gas too fast. I really recommend anything that can use a grill tank. You get an adapter for it, even if you don't commonly use it because it's so much better in an outage to have you know, six, eight tanks of that stuff sitting aside and it's just there. Um, but have something, if it's the little butane ones or whatever. And I want to point something out that I shouldn't have to. All the little gas ranges are safe to use indoors. Now, running them full blast to try to heat your house, not a good idea. But my gas range in my kitchen burns propane. It has a little burner. You turn it on, and we sit there and we make stew, and it slow cooks stew for hours. We don't die. It's no different running something like a Camp Chef stuff. It works exactly the same way, I'm sorry. The danger comes with you're attached to a, you know, a tank, a bottle, there's more propensity for leaks. So you wanna make sure that you don't have any leaks. Best practice is that big bottle goes outside, the hose comes through a window or something like that if you need to use it inside. But then as long as you can boil water, you're good to go. And then there, I forgot one of the, the types of coffee makers that you can get. And this is another great coffee maker for day-to-day use. It is a pour-through coffee maker. Generally, they're cone pour-throughs. I'll put a link to like a mass search where you can just see what I'm talking about because I don't have any brands to recommend in particular. But the way these work is they use a paper filter or a permanent filter. If you're gonna use a coffee maker that uses a filter, get a permanent filter, stop wasting money and stop creating waste that you don't need to create. You put the filter in, you put the coffee in and you pour your hot water through the cone filter and it goes into a pot like a normal coffee pot. I would say if you are a person that's using any kind of like a pour through filter or something like that and you're making like, you know, 10 cups of coffee at a time, get yourself an insulated carafe of some sort that you can then pour the coffee into to keep it warm. Microwaving coffee in the words of Alton Brown is not good eats friends and neighbors. It really isn't. If you get one of these, and this is what I really recommend. And the reason I recommend it is I use it. I am a coffee fanatic. I drink Ah, four to six cups of coffee a day. And you know, they're not little girly cups, they're great big manly cups like this, you know. Delicious. Um, these are insulated. If you look at the thickness of those walls, they're heavily insulated. And uh, again, we got the big version, the 50 ounce version of this, and we've used the smaller one for a while. And um, the reason we got the big one is, since we drink large cups, coffee both my wife and i use you know mega cups not these little bitty british teacup things this makes two cups and leaves a little tiny bit that's just never that good at the end that last little bit unless you pour it immediately the big one makes exactly almost perfectly for the size cups we use three full cups so one of us gets the last cup and whoever gets the last cup gets to make the next batch There you go. Um, I know this is like one of those topics a little off from what we usually talk about. Coffee is something that's very important in the lives of people. And just in an emergency situation, the little niceties, the little things that spoil us, these are the things that make us feel normal when things aren't quite normal. These are the things that make things comfortable. Being able to wake up when it was zero degrees outside during the great Texas blackout, fire up the stove, throw a pot of water on it, boil the water, dump it in my French press and have a cup of coffee like it was any other day. It made putting all the shit back together that broke just a little bit easier. Um, it, It really does. And I really recommend that you have not only a solution for stuff like this, but that you try it and use it before you need it. That's good advice with everything when it comes to this stuff. Again, I'll put links to everything I talked about in the video notes, which will be right down there, and if, you, uh, if you're if you listening to this one on the uh, podcast recap, it's one that you might want to pull the video up for. Take care, guys. I'll be back tomorrow. Well, good morning, guys and gals in interwebs land. Welcome to another episode of Miyagi Mornings. Um, today, someone on the MeWe uh, post about Miyagi Mornings asked about, could I say more about why you shouldn't feed birds that you use near laying flock for eggs feeds that contain soy. <clears throat> and uh, a gift happened. I-, I love having collective intelligence, right? When it's actually intelligent instead of a Twitter mob going after somebody for not being woke enough. And somebody in that thread posted a link <clears throat> to an article by a company that makes a non-soy feed, to be clear. So they obviously are selling non-soy. But that article referenced a study by someone who thinks this is a good idea to put soy into laying birds because they think that soy isoflavones at higher concentration in egg yolks is a good thing for you to eat. So we have two competing ideologies, but one ran, and I read the study, it's a very well done study, and their hope was to prove that you could modify the diet of a bird and that modification would either put more soy isoflavins, and hence phytoestrogens, we'll get into it a second, into an egg. And at the absence of that, those eggs would not have phytoestrogens, soy isoflavins in them because, well, you didn't put them there. And they want to know how long did it take for this to happen. Well, cut to the chase on the study, it's about ten days. In about ten days of feeding soy to your birds, you will see a significant concentration of soy isoflavones, which is contains phytoestrogens, in the egg yolks and in the animal's liver and kidneys. Keep that in mind. Okay. If you took the animals off this, it very quickly went away. In about 10 days, it was almost undetectable. Again, I'll link to the study and the article in the video notes below. So we know that if we don't feed a duck or a chicken or a quail soy, that their eggs do not contain isoflavones and phytoestrogens. That only when we feed them soy, or maybe something else that contains a, a, a phytoestrogen, does that happen. So let's just start off from a basic understanding of what that means. That means, since ducks and chickens and quail do not run around in their natural habitat looking for and eating soybeans, that we already have an unnatural product, that this this product that we have consumed as food for as long as humans have been able to figure out what comes out of a bird's ass, crack it open and eat it, is not supposed to have this stuff in it, flat out. It's just not supposed to be there. And I've checked, and I could be wrong, but this old redneck hippie duck farmer here was unable to find any examples of any wild birds used by humans for eggs that contain phytoestrogens. I'm not saying none exist. I'm telling you I couldn't find any. And there's lots of cultures all over the world that go out and collect wild birds. From the Inuit up in in northern parts of Alaska into the Sahel region of, of Africa and everything in between. There's indigenous societies that use wildly gathered eggs. And I can't find any of them that have this in it. So it seems like that's not supposed to be there. Now let's take it to the next level. What is a phytoestrogen? What some people have been led to believe, maliciously I might add, is that a phytoestrogen is like a precursor to estrogen. It is a thing from which estrogen can be made. It is not. It is not what it is at all. A phytoestrogen is a substance that is chemically so close to estrogen that it behaves like, looks like, and acts like an estrogen. And the human body has estrogen receptors, both men and women do have estrogen as a hormone in our body. Men have a very little bit of estrogen and a lot of testosterone, and women generally have a lot of estrogen and a little bit of testosterone because whether you believe this or not or like to hear this or not, the science is clear that there are two genders, okay? And this is something that's important medically and from a health perspective because a man's not going to get ovarian cancer, right? And a woman's not going to get testicular cancer, just to make it that blunt. So this matters. And when you consume phytoestrogens from soy products and any other natural product that contains them. When that gets into your body, you have hormone receptors that are designed for estrogens to attach to and perform their function. And the body can't tell the difference at all between a phytoestrogen and a naturally produced estrogen, and hence, it bonds with that receptor and performs the functions of estrogen. Now, We've already determined that the human body produces whatever estrogen it needs. Very simple to understand, right? We somehow have functioned with the limited amount of estrogen a man needs and the the significant amount of estrogen that a woman needs for our entire existence, possibly millions of years, without eating soybeans. Humans did not eat soybeans until the mid-1900s in any quantity. I'm sorry, we just didn't. It wasn't a thing. They realized they could make money with it as an agricultural crop, and it became a thing intentionally. All right. So let's just think about this logically. I've been saying this for years, that this gets concentrated in eggs. And I now have proof. It's actually a study from 2009, so it was always there. I just never bothered because I didn't think it was necessary to prove something as simple as if you have an estrogen, and you put it into a bird, and that bird lays an egg, which essentially is an ovum that's developed from ovum to egg, there's only one place that animal is highly likely to concentrate that extra estrogen, and that is in the ovum. It just makes sense, because that's part of how females use, use estrogen. Okay, what does estrogen do? What is the purpose of estrogen, specifically in the female body? Well, it regulates the progress through puberty. So as women progress through puberty, they develop their breasts, they develop a little bit on the rear end, so that they're more attractive to males, because that's a thing guys, it is. Um, and they move toward menstruation. They develop hair in strange places, like the funny bunny taught us, right? Okay, when that's going on, it's estrogen that regulates that. And when they progress to full womanhood, they go into where they're, they're, they're menstruating, and they're capable, and they're running a cycle, and they're capable of having children. It regulates that cycle. And when they come into menopause and out the other side, and they no longer are capable of bearing children, it wanes significantly because it's no longer necessary. For some women, this gives them problems, and we'll come back to that. For some women, most women, it doesn't if their diet is right and they're healthy. Not all. Some. Don't get pissed at me, women. Okay. Now, conversely, the counter hormone for this for men is testosterone. And that's what makes men have these arms that are more defined if we eat well. I don't lift weights, right? And and I have this look to me now since I lost weight and started eating mostly meat. My testosterone level's way, way up. You can test it and measure it. And that's what men are supposed to have, significant testosterone levels. Women are supposed to have significant estrogen levels, and it's supposed to decline as women pass through menopause. This is science. If you say you trust science, then you need to trust this. This is no doctor with a brain would ever argue anything I've said so far. So then let's just think about this. Let's say you were the parent of a strapping young man, about 14 years old. And he was starting to kind of develop a little bit, getting a little chinny-chin hair, stinking a little bit more from sweating, putting on a little bit of you know muscle up in the upper body, the gangly, you know, long gait, clumsy stage, you're starting to go away. He's going through puberty. You notice you take him out and a pretty girl walks by and he doesn't want you to know, but the head turns and he's he's progressing like a young man is supposed to. He's noticing girls, he's looking like a he's like he's looking like exactly what it is a boy physically transitioning into adulthood. And you take him to the doctor for a well checkup, because you believe in stupid shit like that, letting a doctor tell you what to do with a perfectly healthy kid, which is basically nothing, right? And your doctor says, you know what? I have an idea. Here's some pills. Start giving him these pills every day. You go, what are these pills? He goes, it's estrogen. And you go, isn't that the female hormone? You go, you know what? He would just be better off with some extra estrogen in his body. Now, if you had an IQ above 80, you should see, wah, 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 this guy's a freaking quack trying to turn my young man into a girl, and you should leave that doctor and probably report him to the medical board. Again, I think anybody with IQ above about 80 that hasn't been blindsided by woke bullshit, would say absolutely, this is criminal behavior. You don't do this. Okay? So, you people that get all woke and start dumping massive amounts of soy milk into your kids' milkshakes or whatever, feed them soy ice cream, and feed them eggs that are laden with this shit, that's what you're doing. You're adding estrogen because your body can't tell the difference. This is medical fact. Conversely, you have a young girl, 14, 15 years old. She started to develop. She's looking good. She's noticing that young man right? Everything about her life is progressing the way it's supposed to. She's moving into menstruation and all. She's doing everything that we expect a young girl to do as she transitions into womanhood. And your doctor says, you know what we should do? We should load her down with some extra estrogen. Maybe not as alarming as doing it to a boy, but don't you think that's a dumb thing? Her body is clearly making exactly the amount of estrogen necessary to progress her into womanhood. Why would you give her more? It's a hormone. It's a hormone, and you're giving her a phytoestrogen that the body cannot tell a difference of. This is also criminal behavior. Now you got a woman, about 28 years old, got one kid trying for another one, everything's going well, she looks like a woman, she acts like a woman, she talks like a woman, she's happy with her husband, they have a great, you know, sex life, everything's good. you got to pump her up full of extra estrogen? Why would you do such a thing? You've got a guy who's 28 years old, he's going to the gym, he's pounding the weights, he's looking good. He's healthy. You're going to give him estrogen? Only if you're a moron. Who is the only person that it would ever make sense to add this hormone into their body, someone deficient in it, for their period in life? So a woman may go into menopause, and you. I think most of the time, I can't prove this, most of the time I think it's due to bad life decisions, but it may not always be, where their estrogen level crashes so much they, they need a little more. And you know what we usually do? We give them estrogen in the form of phytoestrogen from plants as estrogen therapy. Okay, I'll bite. That makes sense. So maybe if you're like a 60-year-old woman that's that's postmenopausal who's having issues with this, instead of rubbing plant cream on your hands, maybe eating soy-laden eggs is a good idea. How is this a good idea for anybody else? Where does it ever make sense? To start, when it's not deficient, dumping excess hormone into the human body and and, and just fucking with our endocrine system. It doesn't ever make sense, does it? You You have to be blind to this. Now, I'll tell you why no one tells you this. Because we've been doing this for so long now that people assume if it's got the stamp of the government on it, and it's something we routinely do, it can't be a problem. No matter what it is, they think it's okay. But a cursory examination of the facts here would tell you this is a bad idea. And if you look at the testosterone rates in young males, 25, 35 years old, that range, where it should be at like its highest, so that they can be the men that we need them to be in society, it is a fraction of what our great-grandfather's testosterone level was. And it's not all soy, but it is directly related to diet. And pumping up estrogen is going to decline testosterone. It doesn't belong in a young man. It doesn't belong in a middle-aged man. It doesn't belong in a man at all beyond the little tiny bit of estrogen we need because it does perform some functions in our body. And it does not belong in a woman's body at any age in elevated levels beyond what her body naturally produces unless she has a deficiency in it. So why are we doing it? Because it's cheap and it's high in protein. If you gave me a choice, I can feed my birds organic feed that's soy-based or a non-organic and even has some GMO in it that is soy-free. I will take that one over this one. GMOs go to a whole new place. We'll talk about that in a future episode. Why it's worse in soy than it is in something like weed or corn. And it has to do with how often it's sprayed, why it's sprayed, and what it's sprayed with, as far as the herbicides go. But anyway, if you still think this is a good idea, I would love to hear from you as to how it makes sense to elevate estrogen levels in men or women beyond what their body needs. Go ahead, explain it to me. I know they told you soy isoflavones are good for you. What else have they told you is good for you? I'll catch you in another episode tomorrow, and we'll wrap up the week. Hey guys, Jack here with the final episode of Miyagi Mornings for the week, uh, Friday edition. This one is going to be on ponds. This comes from Cindy. Cindy asks the following question on the Sticky that you can ask questions on, and you'll be highly likely to get an answer if you do it there. Uh, Cindy says, we are thinking about adding a pond to our property. It would have to be fairly small for us. So with it being small and knowing that you have several water systems in place, what would you recommend to someone that is putting in a small pond for backup water for their small livestock tank or in ground? Would a small flock of ducks do well with either? Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. So when you say small, I don't really know what you mean. So and I, that's why I read this question exactly. So as I'm answering it and trying to make it more generalized so everybody benefits from this, uh, you understand what I'm working with here. So small livestock, so I'm assuming that's like ducks, chickens, you know, rabbits and stuff like that. Animals that you would most likely take a bucket and, and, and take the water to them in a backup situation. I do that all the time, uh, and it's very useful for that. Tanker in ground. Um, when you say tanker in ground, I'm not really sure if you mean something like a 300-gallon stock tank. Or if you mean something like a Miyagi pond, which this entire video series is named after, my big Miyagi ponds. Let's just kind of talk about what is the difference between a container full of water and a pond. A pond is developed as an ecosystem, to me anyway, or it's not a pond. And I have built pond systems out of tanks as small as, let's say, 300 gallons. And I think you can take a 300-gallon stock tank, and if you do the system right, put in filtration, et cetera, um, encourage biology, you can call it a pond. It's a very tiny pond. It's more accurately a very large outdoor aquarium. When I start thinking pond, I'm starting to think in the range of, you know, uh, 500 to 1,000 gallons and up. All of the ponds that I have, including my largest pond, which is a 12-foot by 12-foot Miyagi pond, are small. I mean, I I would define all of those as small. And there's an issue. The smaller the pond, the less stable it is, the less oxygen battery you have, and the more likely it is to become stagnant or anaerobic and kill everything that lives in it if your biological and mechanical uh, system of filtration fails. And any of these small ponds, I don't see a legitimate way, specifically in southern climates, to keep them going and keep them alive without the use of some sort of mechanical agitation like a pump or an air pump or something like that. I, I just don't. Uh, somebody somewhere probably has done it, buried a bathtub in the forest and kept it under shade, and frogs live in it and minnows, and it's okay, and I guess maybe. But in general, the smaller, and this is something anybody that's ever kept fish in tanks, like the ones that are behind the camera that you can't see today. I have a 55-gallon tank with a big pleco just swimming around in there eating algae. Um, the smaller the tank, the quicker things go wrong when things go wrong, right? The, th- the quicker they go really wrong. So we need to be thinking about backup systems. So back to the question, tank or in the ground? All things being equal, if you can put a pond in the ground, put the pond in the ground. I know you watch other videos with me, and I'm standing there, and I have this huge, basically wooden-lined tank behind me that we call a Miyagi pond. And you think, well, if that's the case, then why do you have that? Because I can't dig a hole without, like, dynamite and jackhammer attachments for large excavators, there is no way that I can get, you know, the three foot of depth that I kind of see as the minimum depth requirement for that type of pond. Uh, I do have a lot of ponds that are built out of stock tanks and things like that. They're about two foot deep. They're also strategically located. You're not going to see me put a pond like that in a place where it doesn't get shade for a significant part of the day. Because if I do that, it's going to basically heat that water temperature to a point that nothing in there is going to survive and your oxygen levels are going to seriously, seriously plummet, I'm actually going to be putting in a fairly large pond that I'm going to have to erect some sort of structure around through this year, I don't know exactly how I'm going to do it yet, to provide at least some shade at some time, even though I want that that pond to grow for me aquatic vegetation. So I'm going to need some kind of dappled, filtered shade. So the shallower the pond and the less water the pond, the more important it is that it be a shade-based pond. When it comes to keeping everything going, the simple answer is to use a pump. And a very simple, low-draw pump, uh, I really like the brand called Active Aqua, is one of my favorite pumps. I'll put a link in the notes to one of them that I use. They make them in various sizes, from really little to fairly large. Um, but if you're moving water and you're dropping it back in, however you're going to do that, you will most likely be able to keep your pond going. Again, as long as we don't let it get too hot, as long as we have enough depth, enough shade to deal with whatever climate that we're in. And those are the things that you need to be thinking about. And then you need to think, of, well, what do I want out of this? It, you know, if you're running something like uh, a small pond, and, and the main use of it is growing aquatic vegetation and having a water feature and things like that, you know, critters like Gambusia. Uh, which are also known as mosquito fish, little minnows, they have an incredible tolerance. They, they tolerate water way warmer than you think it should be. They to- tolerate water that's dirty. They, you, know, you put goldfish in there, they're pretty hardy. And as you move you know, your fish uh, requirements, your aquatic requirements. So my general rules would be, number one, if you can go on the ground, go on the ground. Your temperature is going to be much more stable that way. Than if you're above ground, number two, um, keep animals out of your your water features unless they're large enough to handle them. So, in the type of th- stuff we're talking about today, a small flock of ducks in a pond that's a thousand gallons, you have a skank pit. You really do. I mean, um, you might I'm like this thing I'm talking about building over here. Kind of is sort of gonna be in a way a skank pit. That's okay. It's designed to do something totally unique. It does not sound like what you want to do. Ducks have basically an ejection button, and they go in water, and poop comes out. I mean, it's almost instantaneous like 95% of the time. This is not good for a small aquatic system. If you were going to have a pond and you wanted to serve ducks with it somehow, then what you might do is create some sort of auto-siphon or something like that that comes down to a drinking vessel. So if we had an elevated pond, we could take something like a piece of 2-inch PVC, right, and we could basically create a siphon system, put a lid on it, where we can maybe close the bottom and fill it all the way up. This would be something you have to kind of figure out how to do, but it wouldn't be that hard. Put your lid back on it, and basically you have a siphon. And now when you open the bottom, water comes out to a point, or maybe you put little waterers, little cup waterers down there, where the animals can you know, kind of peck at it and drink water. And then that way it's always full. And then if you run a float valve to your pond, as they take water, the pond maintains, it's its, and it loses water through evaporation, etc. On that note, if you have a well system, and you don't have chlorine in your water, and you put in a pond, the type of pond we're talking about, smaller ponds, put a flow valve in. One way or another, figure out how to do it, because that way... When you go on vacation for two weeks and you leave somebody behind to take care of things, your water level's not down this far when you come back because it happens. And if something goes wrong and maybe water is discharging at a place that it's not supposed to, it's not good that water's running and discharging, but it's better than the alternative, which is your pond level goes way, way, way down. I would also say that if you have a well and you ever have a system fail and you can't immediately fix the pump in it or the aerator or whatever you're using and you're not sure what to do, take your hose, Put something on it to keep it weighted down so it goes all the way to the bottom. Put the hose all the way to the bottom of your pond. turns your water on until it begins to overflow. And then maybe back your flow down till it's a, a more stable rate of overflow. As long as you're not floating the neighbors out or anything like that, just let that go. Just let that go until you get a new pump in place. This is why I'm also going to say, if you're going to put a pond in and it's going to run on a pump, an air pump, a, a, a submersible pump, I don't care, whatever it's running on, <clears throat> if you don't have one that looks just like it, On a shelf, brand new in a box, you're wrong. Because I don't care if Home Depot's down the road, and if they happen to have a pump in stock, if you come home and your pump has died, you probably don't have time to run down there before you have catastrophic failure in a small pond like this. In the summertime, certain times of the year, etc. So we need to be able to hot swap as quickly as possible. I'm also a big believer in multiple pumps in a system. So what I generally do is I run a continuously operating pump, and then I run some sort of an ebb and flow system. And that could be for aquaponics, and it can just be to grow reeds or something like that. It's, it's just another level of filtration and aeration. That second pump I generally run on a very simple mechanical timer. I use ones from a company called Sentry, just like the pump. I'll put a link in the video notes today. And it's a very simple timer that basically has a bunch of little pegs, and there's, each peg is 15 minutes. If you push a peg down, it's on. If you leave the peg up, it's off. It's that simple. You don't have to have a freaking degree in programming from MIT to work it like some timers. And I said that, and I just go through, and every hour I push down one pin. And that means it runs for 15 minutes and shuts off for 45. And I run my ebb and flows so that when, you, when the pump's running, it runs. And you can look at some of my other videos. I'll find one, and I'll link to it in the, show, in the video notes here again. And when the pump stops the water drains back through the pump itself. It sounds complicated. It's really dead simple. And what does this mean? This means that I have one pump in my system running 24-7, 365, and it is going to eventually wear out. It also means I have a pump in my system running 15-45 or 25% of the time. It should last on average compared to my other full-time pumps if they're the same pump in the same situation. It should last four times as long. This means the odds of both of those pumps dying on the same day are very, very low, right? So I recommend that you in it, so either you do something like that or you get something like a good aeration pump, just a, a bubbler, and you run that and you run those independently. So if one dies, the other one's still running. Last but not least. I don't know if you've noticed, but occasionally, like, you're sitting in your house and everything's happy. Maybe the TV's going, the coffee's percolating or whatever, and then, for whatever reason, your power goes out. I highly recommend that everybody, especially in my audience, have backup power. But if you're going to have pawns, you may want to have backup power just for your pawns. And I'm all about backup batteries and stuff like that. And if you want to go through the rigmarole to do that, I think it's a great idea. It's something I want to incorporate more. Uh, I have myself extended, probably more so than I should, because it's an educational facility. to have multiple systems. It would be far better if I had just built one big system. And for most people, that's what I would advise. Uh, maybe two, because this new one is totally, a, a you know, kind of... It's kind of an earth-changing or, or homestead-changing thing. If it, if it works out the way I think it's going to, it may be something that empowers homesteaders all over the country, maybe all over the world, to produce more of their own feet. So it's a totally different thing. When we're talking about just a pond, every one you have is another one that can fail, another one that can have something go wrong. But what I've determined is my three main systems can at least run half the pump, no problem, with a $200 Dirty Hand Tools generator, it's about this big in Sip's gas. And I have all the cords for it and everything ready to go. And if the power goes out, I can take that little generator to sit at one spot, run those cords there, boom, and I've got at least half pump on all three of those main systems going. And then I can worry about the rest of my life. I really recommend that you have some method to run these pumps long-term. You can get into multi-day blackouts. It happens. And if it happens in the winter, when your water temperature is low and you're not feeding your fish, it may not be a big deal at all. My, my ponds went four days with ice on top of them, with no pumps running because the power went out and everything froze up. And I didn't lose a fish. Because fish are not making a lot of waste when the water is that cold and they're not being fed. If that kind of thing happens in July, even my big pond has about six to eight hours before you start seeing surface breathing activity from fish, and it's not going to be long after that where you're going to start having dead fish. And it's not going to be long after that where even the fish that are alive, if you get things running, most of the rest of the fish are not going to make it. So make sure you have that backup power. And again, those of you that are on wells, plumb in that flow valve and if you ever end up in that catastrophic situation just throw the hose in, turn the water on and start moving water through. So think about your overflow, that's important in your design anyway hopefully this gets you thinking about doing this and hopefully it doesn't talk anybody out of it. Things can go wrong with ponds, however as you run your pond, you will learn more about how to do it in a way where you won't lose your, your, your biology And if you properly design the biology, you're going to do really well. And I can't remember the guy's name now, but there's a British dude that's big on natural swimming pools and airlift pumps and things like that. He's a brilliant guy. And I'll make sure that his uh, YouTube channel is in the video notes below. And the name is right on the tip of my tongue. And uh, Jeff Lawton told me about him, And as soon as I stop this video, I'm sure it will come to me. Uh, but I'll look it up and I'll get it in the video notes for you. He has a lot of really cool ways he does things. And it would be a good resource to check out as well. If you have any more questions about ponds, let me know. I feel like there might be follow-up to this one required. Take care, guys, and I will be back next week with another week full of Miyagi Mornings just for you. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at com. With Miyagi mornings in the subject line, all subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series.